the slave trade clause of the Constitution uh, is one of uh, three of the major slave clauses. Uh, of course, it kind of shares its title with the Fugitive Slave Clause and the Three-Fifths Compromise or Three-Fifths Clause. Uh, now, to really begin to explore uh, kind of the, the brilliance, really, of the Slave Trade Clause, uh, we had to examine it alongside uh, other kind of policies that were enacted at this time. Uh, so there was other agreements made uh, that allowed for a separate tax to be placed on states based on their population. Uh, originally, taxes were collected by the states, uh, and then the states paid into kind of the federal treasury. At, at the onset, uh, the federal government could not directly tax uh, American citizens. Uh, must have been a must have been the days to be around. So, again, just to reiterate, at the onset of the Constitutional Convention, the the delegates from the uh, slave states, specifically North and South Carolina, uh, kind of went into the door and were like, there, we will not agree to anything that involves restricting the slave trade. You restrict the slave trade, uh, you know, we're going to pick up our toys and we're going to go home. Instead, they got the slave trade clause, which at its most basic level uh, empowered the federal government to uh, federally prohibit uh, the international slave trade in 20 years. So it's already on that most basic element uh, evidence enough, I would argue, uh, that the slave trade clause in no way supported or advocated for slavery. Uh, it's a strange thing to insist otherwise when its entire purpose uh, was to shut it down in 20 years. And the origin point of the arguments uh, were that the southern states would not allow for any restrictions on the slave trade uh, at the risk of uh, refusing to ratify the Constitution. So it's already of win based on that alone. But much like the uh, Southern delegates, it appears, uh, there were several other machinations in play uh, that were uh, vital. So let's examine uh, James Madison again. Uh, he writes about uh, this particular clause in Federalist 42. And it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a point of notice here that many of the sources that I draw from uh, and, and kind of elucidating many of the ideas that I talk about, uh, I practice kind of a general uh, habit or tradition or requirement, really, uh, of trying to reference sources as close to the events as possible. Now, this used to be a kind of a mainstay of, of good scholarship. Now it's not. Now it's uh, what you do is... Uh, you find some so-called authority or expert a couple hundred years after the events who agrees with you, and you quote them as a way to try to bolster uh, a preconceived thesis. Well, you don't get any closer to the source uh, than the Federalist Papers. So in Federalist 42, uh, James Madison specifically describes the advantages uh, that were given uh, through the Slave Trade Clause. So he says, in part, uh, you know, that part of this was included the power uh, to prohibit, after 1808, the importation of slaves, and to lay an intermediate duty of $10 per head 
as a discouragement to such importations. You see, the part of the conversation that's generally uh, forgotten, or I would argue selectively omitted about the slave trade clause is that it wasn't that open-ended. There were severe penalties uh, in various forms levied against importation of slaves. And on the other side, there were also incentives placed uh, for free immigration and for abolition and emancipation. Uh, but that'll that'll come really in the three-fifths compromise. We'll see how all of these th- all of these things work together. Uh, James Wilson, uh, when he returned back to his home state of Pennsylvania, he was a delegate. Uh, he discussed the slave trade clause. Uh, which the state legislature, which, like some people in modern day, they were apprehensive. You know, we, they didn't figure that with the found formation of a country predicated on human equality, uh, that slavery would have any hope of surviving uh, a the formation of the Constitution. But James Wilson, however, explains this uh, to the legislature, and he does so very well. Uh, I'm going to read from this quote. It's a little lengthier, but... Uh, We'll get through it pretty quick here. And it is very much deserving of full recognition. So James Wilson explains, he says, Under the present confederation, the states may admit the importation of slaves as long as they please. And he's referring to the Articles of Confederation. But by this article, after the year 1808, the Congress will have the power to prohibit such importation, notwithstanding the disposition of any state to the contrary. I consider this as laying the foundation for banishing slavery out of this country. And though the period is more distant than I could wish, yet it will produce the same kind, gradual change which was pursued in Pennsylvania. So what Wilson is talking about here is is gradual emancipation, uh, which Pennsylvania had already effectively enacted as essentially a free state already at this point. He saw in this in this clause the beginnings of the national abolition of slavery. So far from, again, this kind of revisionist understanding centuries later. Oh well, clearly this this was a this was a boon to the slave states. He also explains, uh, similar to Madison, why that was not the case. Uh, he he further says it is with much satisfaction. I view this power in the general government, whereby they may lay an interdiction on this reproachful trade, but an immediate advantage is also obtained, for a tax or duty may be imposed on such importation, not exceeding $10 for each person, and this, sir, operates as a partial prohibition. It was all that could be obtained. Now, this is, again, building on that kind of context surrounding this this clause and how it worked with other powers in the general government through the Constitution. Slaves were taxed on importation. Free immigrants, not taxed. So they created a labor market that was beneficial to freedom. It was beneficial to free labor, and it discouraged the importation, importation of slaves uh, because even... As soon as they step foot into the country, you have a ten dollar tax. So that discourages the the trade immensely. It's dropping down. You know, just kind of using basic economic 
and, and, and kind of business jargon, you know, it increases uh, your operative costs uh, significantly. And like he describes here, this acts as a partial prohibition. Now, again, looking at these kind of this new information in in light of the fact that Southern delegates entered into the convention saying that they would acquiesce to nothing that restricted the slave trade. And here we are, we've we've barely even touched the surface of the first uh, so-called slave clause, and they've agreed to a, an outright ban in 20 years, which it didn't take that long. Uh, the first restriction on the slave trade was passed in 1793, which, that's a subject for another day, though, but... Um, and they get taxed on each one that they import. So it's, uh, it's discouraging the slave trade while still, still balancing kind of that, uh, that balance of power, the separation of power in there. And of course, James Iredell, uh, he also addressed how the usefulness of this. So he says, I rise to express sentiments similar to those of the gentleman from Craven's was Richard's bait. For my part, were it practicable to put an end to the importation of slaves immediately, it would give me the greatest pleasure, for it certainly is a trade utterly inconsistent with the rights of humanity, and under which great cruelties have been exercised. When the entire abolition of slavery takes place, it will be an event which must be pleasing to every generous mind and every friend of human nature. But we often wish for things that are not attainable. And he consider, uh, he continues uh, actually speaking specifically to uh, the idea of American exceptionalism, really. But as it is, this government is nobly distinguished above others by that very provision. Where is there another country in which such a restriction prevails? We, therefore, sir, set an example of humanity by providing for the abolition of this inhuman traffic, though at a distant period. I hope, therefore, that this part of the Constitution will not be condemned because it has not stipulated for what was impracticable to obtain. So, rubbing again, kind of introducing a level of just real uh, practicality and prudence, uh, Iredell explains, you know, this isn't what we perhaps wanted. We Everybody who's opposed to slavery would have much preferred an outright abolition, but that simply was not possible. But even at this kind of, uh, kind of watered-down restriction on the slave trade. It was still exceptional on the world stage. Uh, Spain, France, Britain, uh, Portugal, uh, especially Portugal and Spain being the, the primary movers of slavery at this time, obviously had no such restrictions. Uh, now, uh, Frederick Douglass, uh, again, a, he came to the, uh, elucidate and defend this clause uh, specifically. And when he addressed, uh, he explains that uh, this part of the Constitution, so far as the slave trade is concerned, uh, he says it became a dead letter more than 50 years ago and now binds no man's conscience for the continuance of any slave trade whatsoever. But there is still more to be said about the abolition of the slave trade. Men at that time, both in England and in America, looked upon the slave trade as the life of slavery. The abolition of the slave trade was supposed to be the certain death of slavery, 
cut off the stream and the pond will dry up was the common notion at the time. So Douglas is speaking uh, to what is generally referred to as kind of the founding era understanding of slavery, uh, the transplantation of a necessary evil on a course of its ultimate extinction. And the slave trade was at the time thought to be the primary means uh, that slavery was perpetuated. Uh, <clears throat> obviously would not be as as time continued. Uh, but, it, but it is accurate to, to say that the 20-year ban on the slave trade in the Constitution, so the slave trade clause, was considered to be a 20-year death sentence on slavery as an institution. Many people thought, as Douglas explained there, that the destruction of the slave trade was synonymous with the destruction of slavery as an institution. So just examining the first of these three slave trade clauses, the Constitution was authored with the intent to destroy a you know, 5,000-year-old uh, human tradition and institution in 20 years. So not exactly coming from a place uh, of vehement racism or a love of slavery. And that is just one of the three uh, slave trade clauses. And at the risk of kind of a spoiler, I suppose, it doesn't get any better for the uh, pro-slavery states at the time. So let's uh, examine these other slave trade clauses and we'll see how they build off of one another and work synergistically uh, with the ultimate goal of placing slavery on a course for its ultimate extinction. Mm -hmm.